Welcome to Mill Creek Church in Belleville, Texas, where our worship service is in progress. Today, Pastor Monty Bird continues with his sermon series on the book of Romans. And now, Pastor Bird. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, please. Father, as we continue our study of Romans, I just pray, Lord, that you would open up our hearts and minds to your wonderful word and that we would take a hold of it and apply it to our life on a daily basis. In Jesus' name, amen. As we progress through Romans chapter 12, we find ourselves in the 10th verse this morning. And the 10th verse of Romans chapter 12 reads, Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honor giving preference to one another. Now, I think it's very important as we study this particular verse that we keep it in context of what Paul has already written in the 12th chapter. And if you recall in the 12th chapter, he starts off by saying that each one of us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, each one of us has been given a gift or gifts to exercise within the kingdom. In verse 3 of Romans chapter 12, Paul wrote, For I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. And this measure of faith is in reference to the gift or gifts that God has given each and every believer. And as we exercise those gifts, we're to do so with love. In verse 9, Paul wrote, Let love be without hypocrisy. In other words, it has to be a genuine love as we exercise our gifts. He then tells us to abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. And now we find ourselves in verse 10 where he tells us that we should love one another with a brotherly love in honor giving preference to one another. The Greek word used for love in this particular verse is the word Philadelphia. And it is a word that describes a familial love, a love among family. New Testament writers in the early Christian church use this word to emphasize the fact that each one of us as believers are brothers and sisters in Christ. And this idea that we're brothers and sisters isn't a new concept when Paul wrote this, because in Luke chapter 8, verses 19 through 21, is written that his mother and his brothers came to see him. This is in reference to Jesus. And they couldn't approach him because of the crowd. And in verse 20, it says, And it was told him by some who said, Your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. 
And this is how Jesus answered in verse 21 of Luke 8. He said, my mother and my brothers are these who hear the word of God and do it. Our relationship together as brothers and sisters in Christ was established by Jesus Christ himself. And here we see where Paul tells us that as Christians, we should love one another with a brotherly love. But he goes further because at the end of verse 10, he says, in honor, giving preference to one another. The English Standard Version says, outdo one another in showing honor. In other words, this love that Paul is telling us that we should love one another with is a sacrificial love. You can see something similar as Paul wrote the Philippians church in Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. It's a verse familiar to us. It's a beautiful group of verses. It says, therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. I think when you read those verses, you have to see that true love, true love within the church is built upon a sacrificial love. That's why he told us in verse 3 of Philippians 2 that we should have lowliness of mind, esteeming others better than ourselves. It's also why he told us in our focal passage of Romans 12:10, in honor giving preference to one another. As I went through the previous verse in Romans 12:9, I made mention of the fact that when Paul told us to abhor evil and cling to good, that there's a standard. There's a standard. And that standard in that particular verse I used was the Word of God. For us to identify evil and good, it is not subject to interpretation. It's subject to the Word of God. That is our standard. And I've told the Wednesday night group, sometimes I'll preach a sermon and then I get in the car and I'm thinking about it. And then I think, man, I should have said that. And I had one of those instances. And so I don't want that to go to waste. And so I I want to use it because it does have reference to what I'm preaching on this morning. The world doesn't like that standard, does it? They don't like a holy standard. 
They want the standard to be subjective. That's why you get the response in society of, well, that's your truth. I have a truth. You have a truth. But that's not how Christianity works. Christ said he is the truth. He's the only truth. That's why the word of God is the word of God. It's not subjective. And the world fights us on that, but they fight us on this idea that there is a standard. But I want you to think about something, and it's, it's so odd when you give this some thought. The whole world, until recently, was built upon standards. Let me give you a couple of examples. When you go to the dock, you go in, and depending upon your doctor... You go into the examination room or in the lobby. What do you see hanging on the walls? You see his diplomas, don't you? You see his diplomas. You see his medical license. What the doctor is telling you is, is these are my credentials. I have met the standards to practice medicine. Now, I don't know about you, but if I had gone into a doctor's office and I looked up on the wall and I saw a welding certificate hanging there, nothing wrong with a welding certificate, right? But do I want this person to treat me for a physical ailment when he's gone to welding school? That answer's no. I'm looking for somebody that's had a standard. They've met a standard. And, and as you think about it, All professions have a standard. You went to a school, you got a certification, and in fact, normally in those instances, there's continuing education, right, to show that you are still up to a standard. The whole world has standards. If you get into a car and you drive a car, well... In your wallet, what do you have? You have a driver's license, and that driver's license says that you went through a driving test, and the state government said that you met a certain proficiency for you to drive a motor vehicle. And that could be a regular car. It could be an 18-wheeler. If you are a captain of a ship, you have gone through a certification process to say that you have accomplished a certain level of proficiency. The whole world has standards. But yet what the natural man will tell you is, is that they do not have to live according to a standard in their whole life. But the creator, the sovereign, has said, you will be judged by a standard. And so as we look at what Paul told us here in the previous verse, Romans 12, 9, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. It's not what I think is evil. It's not what I think is good. It is a heavenly standard. And now Paul tells us that we are to love with a sacrificial love giving preference to one another. Well, what's the standard? Is the standard Paul? Is the standard your neighbor? Is the standard somebody that you can always outperform? No. The standard is Jesus Christ himself. He is the standard. He is the model. 
in which you and I as brothers and sisters in Christ, equipped with a gift, are placed here to live our life according to the standard of Jesus Christ. Turn with me to John chapter 15. John chapter 15, verse 13. These are the words of Christ himself. He said, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all things that I heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name he may give you. These things I command you, that you love one another." He's telling us that his sacrificial model, the model of the cross of Christ, is our model in living and loving one another within the New Testament church. We're to use Christ as the standard. Well, how much did Christ love us? Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 verse 5. As Paul wrote, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, I want to make specific reference to verse 8, where It is written, in being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. The theological term for that is kenosis. It's kenosis. And what that is in reference to is that Christ emptied himself. He emptied himself. He gave up. He gave up his rights. Well, what did he have a right? What did he give up? Well, John MacArthur in his commentary on this particular verse tells us what Christ gave up for us in reference to the fact that it is written that being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient. What did Christ give up? Christ gave up numerous things. First of all, he gave up his glory. Second of all, he gave up his authority. Thirdly, he gave up his attribute. Fourthly, he gave up his riches. And lastly, he gave up on the cross of Christ. He gave up his relationship with the Father as the wrath that was meant for you and me was poured upon Jesus Christ. And the Father forsake him for that moment as he gave up his life so that you and I might have life. He gave it up. 
One could say that he gave up his right, his rights of all of those things as he came and lived his earthly ministry all the way to the apex of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, his rights. And I would like to make a brief point by saying that we are killing ourselves in this society by our rights. I have a right. I have a right to do this. I have a right to do that. And unfortunately, as people come in from society and we kind of drag our baggage into the church, unfortunately, church life sometimes is disturbed by people saying, well, I have a right That person violated my right. And you can have disharmony among the fellowship because people are standing on their rights. Well, Jesus Christ didn't stand upon his right. He gave up his rights so that you and I might have life and experience the love of Christ. For us to love one another with a brotherly love, it means that we have to love sacrificially. Which is why Paul wrote in Romans 12.10, in honor giving preference, giving preference to one another. In other words, we gracefully gracefully love one another. I love in that Gloria Gaither hymn where she writes that we would guard each one's dignity and protect each one's pride. That's what defines a healthy church. Is that we have brotherly love giving Preference to one another. There's a standard of love. You can also see this not only in the life of Christ, but you can see this in the definition of love as Paul has written in 1 Corinthians 13. Turn with me there, if you will, to the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians. It's a verse that we're all familiar with, it's a verse that is typically read at a wedding. Regarding love. And in the fourth verse of 1 Corinthians 13, Paul wrote, Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Is not puffed up. Does not behave rudely. Does not seek its own. Does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. In other words, if I am to love sacrificially, it always involves me stepping aside with a little bit of grace. If not, we can just fight each other on rights. And that's why society is tearing itself apart. Because the world is built upon rights. Christianity 
is built upon love. It is built upon love. I remember one time when I was in high school, I was in my driver's ed class. My driver's ed teacher was outlining a potential scenario. And I chose the wrong answer. And I said, but I was right. And he said, well, you may have been right, but you'd be dead right. (laughs) Rights kill love. Love should be how a church is defined. And this comes from the words of Christ in John chapter 13, verses 34 through 35, when Christ said, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Again, just as we think about good and evil have a standard, what's the standard in Christianity towards love? Christ tells us in his words in verse 34, you love one another as I have loved you that you also love one another. In other words, what he's saying is, is that I'm giving you a commandment that you love one another and I'm that standard. That's what Christ is saying. He's the standard. He is the measuring pole in which we compare ourselves and what we should do and how we should interact with one another. Now, let me state and emphasize that we should look at this within the context of our spiritual gifts. And let me also say, as I am about to go down this road of looking at this in context of your spiritual gifts, we're not talking about what I'm doing right now, even though that is something that God calls pastors to do. We're not talking about teaching a Sunday school class. We're not talking about singing a solo in church. While all of those are wonderful and those are all needed, we are talking about you living your life every single day for the glory of God and exercising those gifts. We're not talking about Sunday. Just want to get that straight. We're not talking about Sunday. We're talking about Monday through Sunday. And as we are told to love and give priority to one another, when you think about gifts, the first thing I want to bring up in is that we typically, if you've heard, and I know you've heard this, that the definition of a gift always involves time, talent, and treasure. That's typically how gifts are defined. Time, talent, and treasure. And when you think about that definition of time, talent, and treasure, I want to reference a couple of verses for our topic this morning. And the first of those verses is found in the second chapter of James, starting in the 14th verse. James wrote this, What does it profit, my brethren? 
If someone says he has faith, but does not have work, can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And the point that I want to make there is is that if we're to love somebody that is destitute, does it take time, talent, and treasure? Absolutely. Absolutely. But how many times have you heard, well, I will serve God more when I have more time. I will serve God more when I have more money. If I obtained a certain gift, I would then serve God more. Helping somebody that is destitute, either in the church or out of the church, do you have to have special training for that? You don't, do you? Is there ever a good time? I mean, think about it. And I think it's true that the older that we get, time becomes more precious. Somehow, the older we get, it seems like we have less time. And for you to love and for me to love sacrificially... It means that it is going to cost me and it is going to cost you time. For us to love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, it is going to cost you time. That's what love is. Love is sacrifice. Love is sacrifice. I remember when Kathy and I first got married. I made this stupid remark that we would have children when we had more money. Does anyone have enough money to raise children? No one has enough money to raise children. But guess what? You find the money, don't you? You sacrifice. You sacrifice your time. You sacrifice your money. And as brothers and sisters in Christ, just like that parental example, as we have a familial relationship with one another as brothers and sisters, it is going to involve sacrifice. Let me give you another verse. Luke chapter 10, the parable of the Good Samaritan. In the 33rd verse, Of Luke 10, it says, But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. Now, let's look at that in a little bit closer detail. Was the good Samaritan sitting on the street corner wondering what he was going to do? No. 
He was on the journey, wasn't he? Now, I don't know about you, but when I'm on a journey, I'm going to a specific destination, aren't you? In other words, there is purpose in his travel. And as he was journeying and he came upon this man that is wounded due to thieves. So it cost him time. Then he made a deal with the innkeeper. He paid for his care, but he said, if there's any more, I'll settle the balance when I see you again. Did it cost him treasure? Absolutely. This is the definition of love. And as we love one another in the church, Christ said that we will be defined by our love. And let me stress that Christianity isn't a solo sport. It's a team sport. We're brothers and sisters. We've been brought together. Now, in order to love effectively, it means that we have to know one another. We have to have a relationship with one another. I don't know about you, but if somebody approaches me on the street and wants to do something nice for me, I am very skeptical. But if someone I have a relationship with says, I want to help you out. It feels normal, doesn't it? And unfortunately, because people have viewed Christianity as a solo sport and not a team sport, people sometimes come into a congregation and they don't know one another because they think, well, I'm here for church. I'm going to leave. I have gone to church. Therefore, I have done a good thing. But that's not the church design. The church design already, as we've established, is for us to be brothers and sisters. Now, if you think about that on familial terms, do you know your brother and do you know your sister in a close, personal way? Better than anybody else do they know you, right? My brother was down here a while back for a visit and we were driving down the road and I popped off and said something. And he said, that's just such a dad statement. You sound just like dad. And I thought, yeah, I do. (laughs) He knows me. Knows me better than anybody. There's not a time where he doesn't remember me, nor I him. That's a familial relationship. And as we come together as brothers and sisters in Christ, if you want a wonderful church experience, if you want a wonderful church experience, you got to get to know people. Now, the other thing about that is, is that can my brother talk to me in a way that no one else can? As we think about brothers and sisters? Absolutely. Now, we could have a fake love, just as earlier Paul said, let love be without hypocrisy. We could have a fake love. We could play love. I've been in churches like that. You know, you leave, your face hurts because you've been smiling so much. That's a fake love. 
But a real love is when we know one another and we can share one another's burdens and we can experience Christ together. That's what church is all about. So let me encourage you, and I know this will bear fruit. The more you commit yourself to the body of Christ, the sweeter that love grows, not just among one another, but in Christ himself. Because we are fulfilling the message and ministry of Jesus Christ. Join me in prayer, please. Father, we thank you so much that you loved us, not out of merit, not out of our own self-righteousness, but you loved us when we didn't deserve it. And I pray, Lord, that we might love one another with a love that mirrors that sacrificial love in which you loved us. I pray, Lord, that if there is someone listening in this morning that doesn't know you, that they'd commit their life to Christ this morning. I pray, Lord, that this church might have the reputation in this community as being a place of love. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us as Pastor Bird continues this sermon series. If you wish to hear more, you may find him at millcreekchurch.org or go to sermonaudio.com slash millcreekchurch. Prayer requests may also be left at millcreekchurch.org. Our church services are as follows. Sunday morning Bible study is at 9 a.m., followed by our worship service at 10 a.m. We have Wednesday night prayer meeting and Bible study, and they are at 6.30 p.m. For more information and our mission statement, please visit our website, millcreekchurch.org.